are doing that too, so. Okay, great. Well, we're back. We're live in the Self-Achievement Network. Hello, everyone. My name is Dominic, and I am back with our couple of weeks ago, Person Behind the Passion. And Rashna is going to be talking to us today. Hi, Rashna. Hi. Hello, Dominic. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. I'm like, I've been waiting for this for since the last time we talked. Bees. We're yes. going to be talking, not we, Rashna is going to be talking about bees and why they're important. Why, what about pollination? You know, these, these shows, I mean, that we watch on TV with the whole, uh, what is it? The bee movie. The nature shows and the bees and the, all this stuff. I mean, I feel like I've like, I'm in the show now. <laughs> well, you you actually are, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate that. And um, so, so a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about your passion, which is really, I mean, you have several. So. <laughs> You're multi-dimensional. <laughs> right, right. You're living in Arizona, you've been supporting people and women and doing all sorts of things. What are, just give us a general idea of who you are and what you're up to and like that. So uh, again, thank you so much for having me in the show. Uh, I'm so excited today, especially because um, you invited me over the second time and not just that, and I get to talk about my favorite topic, my bees. Uh, and when I say my bees, I really mean my bees because I'm really, really passionate about it. They're um, all my bees. I love every one of my bees. <laughs> <laughs> no, and um, I, I actually am an educator. Um, I teach at ACP Erie, uh, which is a college. It's a, a college preparatory school for Chandler Unified School District, and uh, I teach nine to twelfth graders uh, different subjects related to biology, uh, like honors bio, AP environmental science, and honors science research this year. Um, the biggest thing that I do uh, with my students is not just to have them do science projects and science fairs, but my motive is to push them a little bit more further into thinking about a real creative, innovative, solution to real world problems that we see on everyday basis. Um, it can be anything from a computer program. It can be anything from a sustainable uh, solution to anything that might just help you prevent yourself from burning from a hot cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea that pours into your hand. So just critically starting the creative mindset of people and students, especially earlier in life. That's what I really, 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 really uh, push the students into because I, what I have seen is uh, with students, if I do not trigger their curiosity and I do not tell them the true meaning of science projects, they get um, burdened by all the paperwork, all the you know formalities of it, and they lose that essence of science is fun concept. So when, when, you, when you have something that you really like, Dominic, and you have a goal to reach your idea of that particular invention or innovation or creative idea shines through your 
work. And that's the reason why um, I have a research club in my school that I try to motivate these kids through grant writing as early as ninth and 10th graders. And once these grant writings uh, work, and they are usually $10,000 grants from MIT, from Lexus Eco Challenge Scholastic, Toshiba, CenturyLink, you name it. Um, and I have them come up with an idea, do the background research, do a patent search, so that even if they do not get end up getting the grant, they still have a creative idea to patent and then form a company and go that direction, business, entrepreneurship, and innovation really early in life. Wow. So, Amazing. Amazing. So you're that, busy. I am busy because I am constantly thinking. And when I'm thinking, I look for problems around me that I can solve. So my mind is always constantly working. And uh, last year, it's funny because last year I went to Sydney to my sister's place. And I was looking at what's the problem in Sydney? I mean, what are the things that I can solve? And that's all I could think. <laughs> and rather than enjoying Sydney, of course I did enjoy it, but that, that's where, that's, that's who I am. I'm just trying to be a better version of myself every single day because that means a lot to me. Learn from your mistakes that you have done today and not repeat it. Of course, it does get repeated, I'll be honest. But at least you learn and you teach your students that, hey, I have learned from my mistakes. I don't want you guys to do the same mistakes. Learn from me and then go a step forward. So I tell them all my horror life stories uh, from all my teenage days to my early 20s. And I said, hey, that was a really bad mistake that I made. You guys keep your mind straight. So I, I mean, it's not just science that I teach. It's more like life lessons that um, really, really, I think the students understand and appreciate it. Yeah. So it's really empowering the, the your students to be curious about how to go into the world and help the world. Right, right. And uh, if we do not empower them, Dominique, right now uh, with the uh, IT, with the visual, uh, I mean, every, the gaming platform that we have right now, which I see in my kids, I feel that it's just sucking the, you know, curiosity and sucking the creativity out of it. So I'm even even there when my husband, my son's a hacker, when even when he is playing Roblox and he loves Roblox, um, I said, okay, you know what? You're playing a game that somebody else made for you. And yes, you're scoring points, you're earning levels, like you're on platinum, silver, gold, whatever. But what are you contributing to that game that people can say this is yours. Yeah. Even within Roblox, come up with a way to put your signature in there or your parts to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to trigger his curiosity that way. Uh, with my daughter, it's different though. She she is a completely different set of an, like a mindset and her brain works in a very different way. So I'm trying out ways to trigger her and motivate her in a different way. No, and, and that uh, that goes exactly, it goes the same with all my students that I have. I call them kids. Hey, kids, 
<laughs> and I was told by my principal, don't call them kids. Uh, because some people, some of them get offended, but I'm like, no, they are my kids. You know, they, I, I mean, really, because they are, I mean, they're not just my students because we are, we are always constantly learning from each other. Right. And uh, it is such an enriching feeling, Dominic. I mean, I have to admit, I never thought I'd be a high school teacher, but this is such a gift from God. And I am grateful that I was not able to complete my PhD after 13 years of my first master's. I'm grateful that I got to ACP Erie. I'm grateful that I'm working with this amazing mind and I'm trying to bring out the curiosity and pay it forward. I don't know, I talk too much, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think that it's great. But I mean, I was thinking about all the I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an adult, I've got kids, I've been in, in neighborhoods where there's lots of kids and when you say, when you're talking to your kids like they're your kids because it's, and then they get offended, but they don't know yet. No. They don't know yet, it's okay. They mm -hmm. are. I mean, I talk to people mm -hmm. all over the world. There's a, a young lady that I talk to, she's from Nepal. She calls me grandpa, she's 16. Okay. She, she's my kid. I mean, of course. They're all they're all our kids, you know. So, but anyway, it's amazing that you're doing that, and 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 the kind of the the way that you put it together is like you're do you're it's not just teaching mm -hmm. this. You're teaching this. And and that and that's what my vision is. I don't know whether I'm teaching this or this. But I do want the end goal that I really want to see in the students is 20, 30 years down the line, they'll see, oh, I remember Mrs. Natch. She told me to do this and I need to learn from her mistakes and not repeat it. Or if I'm able to influence somebody positively saying, oh, yeah, I should never give up because I never give up even if I hit rock bottom. And if some one of the students learns that from me, I think that's going to be a very fulfilling. It's true. I mean, I, help, I used to help my father work on his cars when we were younger. Dad didn't have a lot of money, but he would always ask me to help him work, work on the cars. And we were doing something underneath the car, and I'd be watching him thinking, Dad, you got to take this bolt out because this is the easy one. This is, you can reach that one. Take that one. He's like, no, no, no. We want to get the hard one first. Yes. Because then these, you know what I mean? Yes. So yeah. kind Experience. of Anyway, but yeah, so anyway, thank you for doing what you're doing. It's amazing. Oh, so let's talk about this other passion that you have, bees. And I don't even know like the technical name for it, but when you said you like you're a bee and bug freak, I was just like oh. <laughs> <laughs> No. Um, so I actually got into bees. Well, my, my first master's was in entomology, which is insect science. Um, okay. And yeah, entomology. Um, and my, my project during my master's, my first master's was uh, to look at rice pests. So pests, insects that infect rice grains um, and look at different varieties of rice and look at how infection rate of the Cytophilus oryzae, the bug, 
um, and how and why would they infect this very specific grain of rice more than others, right? Um, and um, what I found was it was very disgusting where you buy a whole bag of rice, um, you don't use it, you keep it for a year, and later on, after a year, you open the bag up and there's this whole bug bag full of pests, like rice bugs in there. Where do they come from? You don't see them. So what these Cetaphilus arisae bugs they do is they lay their eggs inside the grain of the rice and they seal it up. So the eggs there, so as the, as the uh, insect is growing inside the rice grain, nobody knows that they're eating rice with bugs in them. But once they're matured enough, they have these snouts, which, they, <laughs> yes, they, <laughs> They dig the hole again and they come out and that's how we have a whole bag full of bugs after a year if you don't use them or maybe there are. I mean, nowadays uh, rice is getting genetically modified to prevent them from infestations, but that was my first master's. So when I came here in 2003, um, uh, I had my kids, I got married and um, in 2013, I decided that okay, enough of just uh, adjuncting at the Maricopa Community Colleges. I just need to go back to uh, studies. So um, I actually uh, got a job as a lab technician at USDA. So in Maricopa here, um, Arizona. So um, I started working with um, Dr. Colin Brent, who is um he is an alumni of the social insect research group at ASU. Uh, and, I, and I told him, uh, Colin, I really need, I really want to pursue a PhD. So what can I do, right? From here, um, I mean, my kids are grown now. I mean, not, gro not grown, grown, but they're going to school. So yeah. I do have this extended period of time during the day that I can use. And I don't just feel like sitting around and doing nothing. So uh, he said, okay, so two days of the week, I was going to teach at Chandler Gilbert Community College. Two days of the week, I was working at USDA and my Friday was free. So what uh, Colin said, I said, okay, I'm gonna introduce you to the B Lab and see if you can find something to work on there. Um, and I still remember um, the first day I went to the B Lab, it's actually at the ASU Polytechnic campus here uh, it's eight minutes from where I stay in Chandler. So it was perfect. Um, I go there with a long skirt and with slippers, right? Uh, not shoes, not boots, anything. It's the slippers. And the uh, uh, director of the B-Lab there, Dr. Osman Kaftanoglu, he's from Turkey. He looks at me and says, maybe you should come back another day and I'll, <laughs> I'll take you to the hive. Because, of course, he didn't want me getting stung. Right. So I said, okay, I was, I was sad because that the place, the, the B lab is really, really remote and it's very hard to find. Um, we have colonies, uh, also there were some colonies that were hosted in the Mesa airport here. Now they have actually moved the colonies because of other reasons, but um, I go back the second day and uh, I get all suited, booted with all my uh, gear on, and then uh, my uh, Osman, I just call him Osman. He is a really good friend now. He says, uh, 
give me a hand. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and he said, no, no, let me uh, put up, put your hand out. And I'm like, uh -huh. why? And he says, I, I need to test you that you're really ready to work with B, so I'm going to have you hold a B. And I'm like, okay, what do I do? I mean, I really need, I really want to work with bees. And uh, I mean, weird concepts and weird things really trigger my um, senses a lot more. And I get this adrenaline rush. So I said, okay, you know, whatever. Uh, I, and I knew that a bee can sting you only once in your lifetime. So I, I, held, I held my hand out and he put a bee in my hand and he said, I'm gonna, uh, so he was holding it by the wings. So of course it cannot sting him. So he, he said, okay, let, let hold your hands out. And he gave it to me and he said, you have to hold it. So I was holding it and I was waiting for him, for the bee to sting me <laughs> because that's what bees do. And then after a minute or so, he's like, okay, you can let it go now. Like, and I let it go and I said, wait, why didn't it sting me? Well, he actually made a big fool out of me because it was a drone and drones do not have stingers. So, <laughs> so drones are male bees. And uh, so, well, I did pass a test saying that, okay, I'm going to work with bees. And I did not know at that time that male bees do not have stingers. So, and that's, and that's the uh, one that he picked for me, a drone, so that at least psychologically he can test me as to how prepared I am to work with the bees. So I continued to work uh, at the lab volunteering for around nine months. Uh, in 2013, I started. And during that time, what I was doing was um, helping all the ASU research grad students. So all the PhD students that were already there in that lab. Mm -hmm. So I learned each and every student's projects. I learned about uh, who their professors were. I mean, how the professors are, you know, when you have a teacher-student relationship, how is the relationship? So I was basically studying the students, helping them with their projects, with getting, collecting bees, or, you know, marking them or running some experiments, and also learning about the professors so that when I decide to go to ASU, I will pick one of the good professors and, sorry, um, having a family of your own, having two kids, you don't have as much time commitment as you expect to be when you are a 24 hour, I mean, a full-time student. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be with someone who uh, appreciates family life. And I, I emailed a couple of professors. Some of them uh, reached out to me. One of the professor, particularly Dr. Jurgen Gadal, he said, oh, I have a project. And I said, okay. And this was, and this was before I was even in the PhD program. Um, and uh, when, and I said, okay, what, what is the project? And he said, oh, you, can, you need to dissect out salivary glands from honeybees. And uh, so that was a project. So to, so to get into a honeybee's head under a microscope and dissect out and pull out the salivary gland so that we can do some comparative analysis out of it. And I said, sure, I can do that. <laughs> I had no idea how to do any of that, <laughs> right? Thankfully, I was very good in dissection. So my hands were very, I mean, from, very, from my master's degree, I remember my first master's degree, everybody used to envy me because every time my sections were perfect 
And every time I could get each and every nerve of every other dissected specimens that I could find. So I was really good in dissection. And that was my, you know, saving grace that, okay, it's dissection, I'll figure it out. <laughs> so again, I started looking around, I started asking around uh, the ASUs, the other research students as to, have you ever seen a salivary gland in honeybees? And I started looking at books. And uh, the first project was looking at the salivary glands between three different kinds of bees in the same hive. So we have the workers, we have the queen bee, and we have the male bees. So I dissected out the salivary glands of all of them. Um, and of course, there was a lot of mistakes done. And um, finally, I realized how to clean up the whole content of the brain and just get a salivary glands out. Um, and my masters that came out of it was basically comparing three different head glands, um, honeybees of the salivary gland, the mandibular gland, and the hypopharyngeal gland. Uh, those are all exocrine glands and compare it between different pupil forms. So from the larvae to a pupae and to an adult, what changes takes place anatomically and genetically um, as the bee grows from a larva to an adult. But that's why. And uh, unfortunately, uh, what happened was in the second year of my PhD program, my professor decided to left for Germany because he got a job there. And... Uh, um, I was not, uh, so uh, it just didn't happen. So I couldn't finish my PhD, but I ended up with a master's degree instead. But since then, I have motivated my students in my high school that I teach to go back into the same lab and with other labs so that they can also work with bees. So I have a lot of prodigies, students who are working with honeybees now. Uh, the projects that they are doing are actually very interesting. They're looking at caffeine addiction. So, um, so Dominic, I will ask you a question before I continuously keep on talking. Do, do you do you do you know when do you drink more coffee? Is it when you are alone, or is it when you are more in a social environment? For me personally, I have one cup of coffee in the morning and my wife and I are here and that's it. So uh, the, ca the, the caffeine in your coffee is a drug, right? So um, what my students are uh, doing is they're looking at caffeine addiction because it's the same pathway that other drugs also work uh, in honeybees because honeybees are social insects and we are social animals. So the model organism is perfect. So they're looking at pathways that um, tells us what kind of caffeine addiction happens when you are in a solitary environment versus you are in a social environment. Okay. So basically telling, trying to figure out and tease out that um, concept of, are you prone to more drug addiction when you're alone or are you prone to more drug addiction when you are under a social impact or social influence? So I love the projects. <laughs> I thought we were just going to be talking about those little bees that go from this flower to this flower to this flower, and then they do whatever they do, and they go back to the thing, and they make honey, and then we eat it. I thought that's what we were going to talk about. <laughs> well, of course, we'll talk about that, too, because I, I wanted to introduce that concept because, you know, uh, you don't have to be in a physical lab space to be doing an experiment with honeybees. There are lots of things that you can do. Um, 
But the one thing that I have learned through my experience with bee stings is that the usually the first sting is not as dangerous because the first bee sting produces antibodies in you. It's the second time that you get stung is that's when you start having reactions if you are allergic to it. And that's what you have to be more careful about. Uh, if you get stung, right, and which I have gotten stung multiples of times, and there was one time that I probably uh, got stung over 30, 40 times all over my face and my body, even after wearing a mask with Africanized colonies. Um, so basically what people have to do when they get stung is, you know, if you have a nail and you get stung here, you need to flick the stinger out and not try to, you know, trying to be in the camera. So if you try, if you use two fingers to pull the stinger out, the stinger is connected to a poison gland or the venom sac. So when you're using your two hands, you're actually squeezing the poison back inside your skin. Oh boy. Okay. So you should never use, you should never use a twizzer to take a stinger out. You should okay. always use like a credit card or, uh, I mean, your nails are perfect or something sharp to just flick it out and never just push it. Right. Because if you're doing that, you're injecting more poison into so you're it. You're squeezing it. So every, yeah, and the longer the stinger stays, the venom gland it continuously, it con yeah, it, it continuously injects uh, and it's not just once. And I have seen through my dissections that if I take a stinger out with a poison gland and I have really cool videos of it, the poison gland continuously pulsates. And with every pulsation, there is venom coming out of the stinger. Wow. So the sooner you get a stinger out, the lesser poison you're going to have, the, ve the venom, not poison, venom, uh, that you're going to end up inside your body. So, so let me get this straight. Okay, so the, the male bee doesn't have a stinger. It's just, why is this, I mean, why am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the queen, the, the bee colony acts like a very patriarchal society in humans too, uh, yeah. because um, all the male bees do is well, the reason why they are made by the queen is that they can mate with the queen, and after they mate with the queen, they die. So uh, in a colony of fifty to 60,000 bees, there is typically always one queen. There are exceptions to the rule, but during the swarming season, which is when there, it's spring and uh, the colony is exploding, uh, the queen will tolerate a secondary or a tertiary queen but in most of the hives, there's only just one queen controlling all the 50 to 60,000 bees that are in the hive, out of which only five or 600 of them are males. So, uh, and those males basically, uh, when the queen reaches of age, so she is sexually matured, she'll take a mating flight. And then during the mating flight, she releases a hormone that invites drones from other colonies to come and mate with her. Um, and then uh, she'll probably mate with 10, 15 bees, one after the other. And during the mating, uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the drones, as we call them, uh, they 
they have to use tremendous force and as a result of which the entire gut comes out of it and they die. So immediately after mating, they're done. They can mate only one. It's kind of like, really? Yeah, you're like choking to death when you're mating. Right. So, um, and again, then what happens is the second, the second drone will come in, they'll remove a plug. So the first bee plugs up the hole so that, because the bee doesn't want any other to come in, uh, contaminate his sperm. So the second bee comes, removes the plug, deposits its sperm, and then drops down dead. Third bee comes, fourth bee comes, does the same thing. So now the queen, another amazing factor that the queen bees have, the bees and ants and other termites have, is that the queen can actually store all the sperms from all of these 10, 15 drones in an organ inside her body called the spermatica. So she stores it for her life. Um, if she is happy with the amount of sperm, she might never mate again for her entire life which her life cycle is around five, well, typically from three to five years. Um, but if she doesn't, then she might take a second flight or even a third uh, mating flight. But it doesn't happen very, uh, very often. So with all of this farm, what she does is, and I learned this fascinating story because um, what, they us what she does is, so uh, in a hive, uh, you know that the, be the beehives are hexagonal, right? Each of the combs are hexagonal. So yeah. she'll come in, she'll use her antennas to measure the diameter of that comb. She can measure the diameter. And then if the diameter is of a smaller size, it means that she can deposit an egg and a sperm in that cell. So which means that she will release one egg from her ov uh, ovary and one sperm from that store of the spermaticas that she has, she'll fertilize that egg and deposit it in that cell that has the shorter diameter. Okay, from that fertilized cell develops a female. But if she finds that a diameter is not that of a worker bee, which is a female sterile bee, it's a little bit bigger, what she'll do is she'll just release an egg, she'll not release any sperm, and from that one haploid, uh, I, I'm using the word haploid diploid, which means there's one set of chromosome versus two sets of chromosome, from that one egg only, a drone develops. So that process is called parthenogenesis. Again, it was, uh, Johann Zierzin, who, who was, um, who was the apiarist, he was the one who discovered this whole entire process of how sexual discrimination happens in a beehive. Because if the female decides not to fertilize the egg, it becomes a male. And if she decides to fertilize the uh, egg, it becomes a female. And that again is controlled by worker bees. Because when they are making the combs and the queen can measure the diameter of it. So uh, just just think about how many things are going on here, right? I'm so going, she'll measure I'm it. Like, yeah. I need to watch this again because uh, <laughs> I'm already like, whoa, that's incredible. So they, they, they check the size and she's like, well, okay. And then she 
And then she'll trigger a release of egg from her ovary, one sperm from the spermatica, and then fertilize it and lay it. And she does that on an average five to 600 times in a day. So she lays on an average five to 600 days, uh, eggs in a day. And if the workers find that, oh, this queen is not very effective, she's only laying 200 eggs in a day, they will kill her. <laughs> they will kill her and they'll sting her to death. So what is this there are, there are, you, you should see these amazing Mutiny. videos. You have to see these amazing videos where the worker is stinging the queen to death. And it's not just their own screen. So if by mistake, when you, and this happened to me once because by mistake during an experiment, I put a different uh, queen in one of the other combs. Next time I see the queen, the workers are stinging her to death because she is not the queen that belongs to that particular hive. Wow. And then guess what? Two things can happen. The Some of the worker bees will go rogue and decide, okay, now I am the queen and I will lay eggs. So chemical changes happen in her body. She is able to develop her ovaries. So remember those, uh, those other females were all sterile. They, were, they are not mated, right? And they cannot uh, lay eggs. But what, at one time, uh, when there is no queen, some of these workers, they develop their ovaries and start laying eggs. But guess what? These eggs are not fertilized because they are not mated. So the results of those uh, worker queens are all drones again. And at one point, there is just drones, no many worker bees, and the colony dies out. So that's, that's one prospect. Um, if... So other thing that they can do is they can pick one or two or three larvae that are one day old, feed them with a very specific royal jelly. Um, that's my son. <laughs> I can see your head in there. Sorry. They can feed uh, and um, the workers will feed royal jelly, which is a very rich proteinaceous substance to these larvae. And these female sterile larvae will develop into queens. But uh, guess what? Yeah, and it's, it's diet-based. So whether a female is going to be sterile or fertile depends on protein diet. So and the workers who are the sterile workers, female workers, selects those specific larvae that they'll feed the royal jelly and those worker those larvae will develop into female queens again there is evolution here a uh, one hive can only have one bee, one queen bee right? right but the workers are raising three or four or five or six of them at one time so what happens again is out of those four or five or six or seven queen cells, the queen that emerges from her cell first goes and stings the other queen cells so that she's the only queen in that particular colony. So she becomes the evil queen. Well, maybe the smarter one because she doesn't want to be kept competition. <laughs> 
This is fascinating. I've it never is. watched a show ever in my life that had this much detail of information. This is like, what is that show called? Game of Thrones? No. Yeah. <laughs> or, or Once Upon a Time, <laughs> where they had the evil queen. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's amazing. I mean, how do you, how do you, I mean, this is just by observation and by, is this widely known? Well, we, we know it. We be scientists, we know it. Uh, uh, and again, uh, most of this is, uh, these are stories that we love to tell people who are imagine. listening. It's like, uh, it, it, it could be made into a movie. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And uh, see, the reason why a lot of people, I, uh, it's, it's typically ignorance and part of, um spectators when it comes to spectators you know they always look at bees as something that they're going to harm us sting us and you know because we do have this social taboos and social frames of mind that we have difficulties getting out of but i work with bees uh, and not just bees i have snakes i have cockroaches i have mealworms uh, and every and everyone says, what kind of pets do you have? I said, I don't have normal pets. I don't have cats and dogs. I'm sorry. But yes, I do have mealworms, nine aquariums of mealworms that are eating styrofoam. I have cockroaches that I'm learning parental care. I have my bees and I have a snake. So <laughs> um, the, a lot of those people are like, what? what? And I'm like, yes. Right. And, uh, are you and I do that. Dominic, I really do that because I want to let my students know the other side of fear. It's knowledge. Yeah. Right. And right. when you have, when you learn so many magnificent things about bees, uh, even, even a lot of people who work, honeybees have become a model organism, even to solve computer problems now. But I, I very, I doubt that even they know that life cycle of a bee and how intricately woven all of the components of the hive is, because it is a self-sustaining system. You know, and we go in there and we disrupt their life, and we collect bees, uh, uh, honey, we collect pollen. We collect propolis, we collect bee wax, we collect bee brood, we collect bee, um, uh, there's so many bee products that are available. And we are the ones who are our invasive species. We go in there and we collect it. And why will the bees not defend themselves? Which means sting you, because you are in their domestic area. So. Right. I mean, it's like the, uh, you know, the uh, native Indians in this country were taken over by the British. Same thing, isn't it? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, the and it, it just it just warms my heart when I talk about bees, because these stories are so and they're not stories. They are really? uh, they were told to me by Osman and Colin, who are my big size mentors, and I have such huge respect for them as bee scientists who are trying to not just uh, get a paper or publication out, but have taken the time to tell me this story that I am able to tell it to you guys now. 
You know, it's it's not something that's read. This is something that I've not read. It's it's a story that has been passed down, like it's a it's a folklore, or you know, like a grandmother's story. That you know, it, it's true. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just getting too more too much emotional about bees. I guess. So, but it's really, I mean, it is really amazing. I don't think that the mainstream people know. I certainly don't don't know what you know. I mean, and it's a microcosm of a macrocosm. Yes. You know, this whole thing that we we talk about our whole life, and then it's really happening on this level. And uh, yeah, it's a civilization within a civilization, and I'm sure that there are many. If you're looking at cockroaches, everybody, I mean, I can't even tell you how many cockroaches I've killed in my life. Yes. And and the cockroaches that I have as pets, they are not the American and the European cockroaches or the German cockroaches. They are the Madagascar hissing cockroaches that actually are the cleanest animals alive. And they are vegetarian. They do not reproduce like the normal cockroaches. So... We need to change our mindset and say, when I say cockroaches, I don't mean that they are Betsy, in, I mean, infectious uh, insects all the time. There are so many good aspects to it. And, 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 this, and this whole concept actually applies to us humans too. You know, just because one person is like that or, you know, you don't like that doesn't mean the whole world is the same. Right. So. Well, I mean, the thing that also that it's like people are just bug crazy. I mean, and I mean, even myself. I mean, I, I I try to pride myself that if I see a bug, I take a little tissue or cloth and I put it outside. The thinking that I have is that they're just looking for food, and yeah. they can't find any, and they get stuck inside the house. So I just take them and put them outside. And then there are things like you know mosquitoes. And I don't even think twice about that. I'm like, whack, yeah. you know, yeah. but it's still, no matter how you put it together, it's still murder. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to tell you that don't kill a mosquito that's biting you. But um, again, uh, there are so many different ways to look at the same issue. You know, you can look at it from an ecological sustainability point of view, because everything is a food chain and a food web. You know, right. everybody is dependent on each other. And what's going to happen if a keystone species, which if, if a keystone, as a keystone species by definition is a species that if they get um, eliminated, the whole ecosystem gets crushing down. So one of my, the discussion that I was having with my students one day today was that is, are humans a, keynote, a keystone species in, in an ecosystem? And we had this discussion and uh, there was for and against, right? So the four people said, yes, we are the most important species. And without us, there will be no tomorrow. There will be no humans. There will be no nothing. And the other group saying, no, we are not Keystone because even if we die, everything else is still going to be real. We are interrupting other life cycles and we are um, invasive. We are, you know, and they had really strong words to say about why humans are not keystone, but it was a, it was a discussion that uh, brought out a huge amount of uh, reasoning and questioning and uh, curious thinking about this whole concept of 
if we are non-existent at this point, if the human species gets obliterated, will ecology still be ecology? Will evolution still be evolution? Will, will the life cycle sustain itself? What are the human impacts that of global warming and what's going to happen to us? So it, it, it was a very interesting discussion that I really liked to be a part of. So. Let's do it. I think that it's amazing because, you know, the thing that I, I mean, we all can easily see that if humans would stop, we're the, we're the biggest polluters on the planet, obviously. Right. So if we would stop doing that, things would go back to a more, uh, what's the word, ecological sustainable evolutional yeah. evolution evolution whatever you know what i'm saying right 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 there there was at one point in time there was the first flower you know and uh and then if we look at it from that perspective i mean we, nobody really knows what's going on but still you know we there was an evolution and then here we are and we're doing all these things to I don't know what you want to call it, right? Survive. Is that the right word? We're all surviving, but then there's the extremes. Yes. And I mean, um, uh, human nature, human habits, uh, consciously, subconsciously, ignore. I mean, it has caused huge destruction, not just to their human race, but to all the living organisms that depend on environment and ecology and sustainability, all when the natural habitats have been destroyed because guess what? There is population explosion and you need more space to live. So you cut down trees, you cut down this, you, cut, you do this. And there is always impacts on the environment. And yeah. there is a way that uh, your whole ecosystem is holding on to, uh, and there is interdependency between each interaction species. And I mean, because the, and, that needs to be maintained um, if we have to be a part of this evolutionary cycle of life. Because if we try to do things that are destructive or not constructive towards the environment, we might be an extinct species one day. Who knows? Let me ask you a question. I mean, so I've had this discussion with a lot of people over the over the years and I always say to people and I don't know that I mean I, I feel in here that I'm right and it's not like I'm right because I want to be right I feel like the the biggest issue that we have on the planet is overpopulation of humans that's my that's like the gut feeling that I have that's causing so many ripple effects with everything and people are like no that's not that's not it this is you know it's that uh, you know we have uh uh you know we have uh planetary uh uh you know overheating and i'm like exactly I mean, but who causes that i mean what, what's your thought about that are we are we are we already overpopulated not if we end up going to mars and populate mars <laughs> Uh, but um, Destroy Mars. yes, yes, because see, there is something called uh, a balance, and when that balance gets disrupted, I mean, uh, uh, 
I forget the ecological word that I use for most of my students, but there is a point of carrying capacity, right? So carrying capacity of, an, of a particular area is uh, such that the organisms living in that particular area can be completely dependent on the resources that's available to it. And once you exceed that carrying capacity, you are putting strain on the environment to be sustainable and to be giving the way it's giving. And this, at this point, the carrying capacity of our, of most of the countries, especially like China and India are off the charts because of the population explosion. And um, a lot of, and we, and I teach um, human population dynamics to my students. And I see, we talk about how different kinds of population pyramids affects the, eco, the um, economy of a country. For right. example, China, when you're talking about China, uh, the pyramid is such that we have a huge ton of older population, but very minimal. So it's like an inverted pyramid, right? Um, very minimal uh, youngsters. And when that happens, what uh, other implications on the economy? Because now we don't have a good working class people that can meet the demands of an ever increasing society, but uh, we have this huge older population that depends on the government to be paid certain kinds. So, and, and now you have these very small amount of uh, youngsters who are trying to feed into that. India is completely inverse. India has this huge crowd of youngsters who are trying to get into this workforce because and the workforce is only so much limited. And because of advances of technology, now you have these elderly population who are living beyond what their lifespans are as a result of which we see a lot of diseases coming in because a human body and i, I and i am not a human biologist um, from that perspective that i'm going to talk about um, our life cycles are meant to be only of a certain length right but because of advances in medicine because of advanced technology we are living a lot more longer than we are we were expected to and that brings in diseases like neurological diseases. And, and um, I read somewhere that, that that could be one of the reasons why we are seeing so many uh, neuro neurodegenerative diseases coming in, along with the kind of food that we are eating, along with the kind of practices that we are be, uh, having. I mean, a lot of people are lethargic. A lot of people are eating a lot of um, food that are not healthy, you know, the healthy lifestyle. Is something that's missing along with that aspect of you know crossing the carrying capacity of a particular place so all of these are actually impacting not just humans but my bees too because guess what they're pollinators so in california when you go back to these almond orchards uh bee colonies are brought in by bee farmers all over u.s to pollinate those almond orchards in California. So when they, and the almonds are primarily pollinated by bees. So when, <clears throat> so at that point, once they are done pollination, right? And uh, the beekeepers, they actually get paid certain amount of money for every colony that they bring. And that's a huge source of income for beekeepers from January to March or March to April around that time. 
So I have friends here in Arizona who take their colonies to California to get, but then what do they do with the colonies? There has been um, talks about incinerating those bee colonies because God knows what disease they're going to bring back to Arizona, right? So cool. what do we do? Uh, and, and because of that, because we have so much restricted space also, we don't have space for agricultural fields where bees can pollinate from. And the all different kinds of honey that you see in the market, supermarkets, the Manuka honey, the this honey, that honey, you know, the, uh, they are called that honey because the bees have actually collected the pollen and the honey from those specific flowers that has medicinal benefits, right? So Manuka honey is collected from Manuka plants, Manuka cultivations. So the secondary byproducts of plants, which are called as flavonoids, uh, the, depending on what kind of flower has that kind of flavonoid, that property comes into the honey. And that's why, you know, honey has been used to be treating different kinds of um, coughs and cold. And some people believe that it even cures cancer. I have no idea. But I mean, they have been using honey and royal jelly for a lot of other. There's a whole concept of science called AP therapy. It's API, AP means bees, and therapy, uh, where diff, uh, scientists have actually studied the benefits of um, honey, pollen, propolis, royal jelly on different kinds of diseases also. So yes, I mean, overpopulation is definitely affecting everything, including my bees. So <laughs> we're doomed. <laughs> well, I mean, get a a, a a global society to stop having sex. That's not going to happen. I mean, isn't that really what it boils down to? Reproduction. Just, I, I I think more conscious. Yeah, exactly. That that's conscious. Yeah, and it's not it's not about copulation. It's not about because. Um, copulation or having sex is going to be a part of human nature of any animal's nature because <clears throat> that's what they do to procreate of their own species and that's inbuilt in us we cannot stop that but uh, and when I, when I talk to my students about why do you think you are attracted to your girlfriend or why do you think you're attracted to your boyfriend and they're like wait what they've never thought about from the science perspective of it and I said you know that when you are procreating, the the idea behind your back mind is that I need to create a perfect individual that's going to carry my good genes and the other person's good genes and and propagate the species more and more. And that's the that's that's the reason why we have sex, you know, just to propagate your own species. Right. And that's not going to go away, but um, as it's inbuilt in you, it's innate in you. So um, the only thing that we can do is just be conscious and re realize that uh, you are not the only living organism that is important in this uh, world, but there are other things that we need to keep living and um, considering about, like your birds and your bees. They're mm -hmm. very important. Mm -hmm. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the the economy right so when i like in the united states which i'm more familiar with it doesn't really matter that uh you know when the when the uh when the income when the ex when when the expenditures 
are higher than the income, the income. then the whole thing gets messed up. Yeah. So when we have you know overpopulation, it's not sustainable, and then we begin to eat ourselves, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, it is really about an awareness. It's, it, and you know, I, um, I see a lot of people um, talking about the thing about consciousness, and I say, well, you know, that's that's really a great thing to work towards. You know, being holy and but what is really consciousness is about seeing more, having an awareness of, and then choosing, making choices after having the understanding because mm -hmm. those choices become the wise thing to do. What we're, what we have, I think, created so far is an imbalance of people who are curious about how to keep our global society sustainable and people not being curious. They, they don't know. So what we're up against is that people don't know what they don't know. It's an unconsciousness that, uh, you know, and I don't, Professed, oh, I know everything. I have an awareness that there's a lot of people that don't understand. So it's about if I have that understanding, what am I doing with it? Am I working towards that? Which is why I always tell people yeah. our purpose in the Self Achievement Network is to, you know, improve, right, our planet. You know. So anyway, wow, what a great discussion. <laughs> Oh, I enjoyed. I enjoyed it. For sure. We have to do this again. I mean, I, I, I was just thinking I should have been taking notes because I was like, okay, we could talk about that. 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 It's so, <laughs> so expensive. It's amazing. And I just absolutely love what you are saying. Thank so you. Thank you. I'm, yeah. yeah, no, um, it, it, was, it was my pleasure being here. And like uh, and the topics and I am not a very strong proponent of you have to do this you have to follow my way it's it has to be a conscious it's an inner conscious thing I cannot force things on other people if they are shutting me down out or you know it, it's again your own self-conscious has to tell you there there is a right and a wrong and I, I cannot be one person who speaks for everybody. They have to speak for themselves. Right. I think about it. You know, you remember this old, this guy called uh, uh, Maslow? No. Abraham Maslow? I've, no, I don't remember. Well, you can, you can do a little Google. I right? will, yeah. Abraham Maslow was a very smart guy. He wasn't, he wasn't, he was like a psychologist or something like that, not a psychiatrist, but he studied healthy people. Okay. Were, you know, successful in life and they had good relationships. They had, you know, the ability to do, they made money and they, you know, they had great family lives and a lot of friends and all that stuff. And he would, he, he came up with this not like a theory, but like it was. You ever heard of the um, the, the the triangle? The um, what's it called? The um, 
something of evolution, but what it doesn't really matter. So it's like a triangle, right? Okay. At the bottom of it, like there's layers and at the bottom are survival needs and then emotional needs and then this and that, whatever. But at the top, the little tiny triangle at the top was all about self-actualization, which is all about potential. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I studied that for a long time and it made a lot of sense because like the, the most of our people on our planet are in some way still in survival mode. And they spend most of their entire life in this survival mode. And that's not where people want to be. You ask anybody, do you want to be paycheck to paycheck? No. Do you want to, you know, have an amazing life? You People want to be living at this self-actualization point right. at the top. Right. However, there's a gap in between, right? Yes. And what Maslow was simply talking about was that in order to get out of the survival mode, to get into this potential mode, has to do with understanding, right. right, that the key to unlocking the thing is in here. Yes. So I completely agree. 